Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. In an article in Christianity Today by Sarah Wilson, she says this, picture this, a bride and groom dashing out of the church through the showers of bird seed and into the limo, all aglow with the light of love from the vows they've just taken. And in the back seat of the car, en route to the reception, they embrace and they kiss. Then the groom announces that he has something to say. And this is what he says. Now you realize, my dear, that as far as I'm concerned, we can't really say we're married because I don't know yet what kind of wife you'll turn out to be. I hope for the best, of course, and I'll help you all I can, but only at the end of our lives will I be able to tell you if you've lived up to my expectations. If you have, then and only then, I'll agree that we truly got married today. But if you don't, then as far as I'm concerned, we were never married at all. After all, how can I call you my wife if you fail to be a wife to me? How do you think that honeymoon's going to go? <laughs> they may not have one, right? Uh, well, it all comes down to what a marriage covenant it is. He's probably misunderstanding what a marriage covenant actually is. And what we have essentially here in our passage in these few verses, it's a marriage covenant. In fact, in verse 33, God declares that about his people. He says, I was their husband, declares the Lord. I was their husband. So in the entire Bible, or in the entire Old Testament, the entire Bible, God deals with his people through covenants. Um, and that's why I picked this passage, because I think it's central to our understanding of, um, of the gospel, of the whole Bible, really. But it's complicated. It's complicated. There's lots of difference of opinion on it in Christian circles. So I want us to look at three things from the passage today. Number one, the problem in the Old Covenant. Number two, the solution in the New Covenant. And number three, the benefits of the New Covenant. So those three things, the problem of the Old Covenant the solution in the new covenant, and then the benefits of the new covenant. Number one, then, the problem in the old covenant. So we have this promise of a new covenant 
verses 31 and 32. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So what was the covenant that he made with their forefathers? Well, it was very similar to covenants that were made all over the ancient world at the time. It was, it was a sacred bond between two kings, perhaps a king that, not perhaps, a king that would go in and conquer another king, but he would allow that king to continue to rule, but he would make a covenant with him or a testament with that king an agreement that they would come into. I promise to do this for you, but you must do all of these things. And usually it was economic or some benefit to the conquering king. There was a pattern to these covenants. And in fact, the whole book of Deuteronomy follows the pattern of those suzerainty covenants is what they were called. They were very common and God dealt with his people all through the Old Testament with covenants. So there are many, right? I'm, I'm only going to mention a few. Um, but what makes it complicated is that in the suzerainty covenant, it was just a legal contract. You obey. It was very conditional. You obey or I will destroy you. It's just a very conditional, legal thing. You do it, there's no love lost. But with God's covenants, it was not only a legal contract, as it were, but it was also a love contract. A love contract. It involved hearts. The vassal king would never have loved his the king that conquered him, but he would obey him because he had no other choice. So that's what makes the Old Testament covenants different. So you have numerous ones. You have the one with Noah, which was actually a covenant with mankind and the earth that he would not destroy the earth by flood. You have the famous covenant with Abraham where God promises to bless him and to make him a blessing. You have the covenant with David where God promises that there will always be a king to reign on David's throne. But the covenant actually referred to in these verses is the one made with the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, even though he only talks about they're getting freed from Egypt. But the idea was that that covenant was enacted when they were freed from Egypt, but then it was ratified when they got to Sinai, when Moses went up on the mountain and he received the law of God. So here's the thing. Most theologians consider those Old Testament covenants as one covenant. Or many do. I won't say most. Many theologians consider that as an iteration of the same covenant. All of them the same one. Of God with his people. That began with a family, then went with a nation, and then ended up in a king. King David. But here's the question, and hence the problem, okay? Here's the question, and hence, that's a good word right there, and hence, it sort of rolls off your tongue, the problem. Was this a conditional covenant, or was it an unconditional covenant? 
Is it a conditional covenant? You obey or you'll get wiped out. Or was it an unconditional covenant? No matter what you do, you'll be accepted. Well, we have numerous places where it sounds conditional. Exodus 19, 4 and 5, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. This is way back in the era when they were released. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. That sounds conditional, doesn't it? Or Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God. That sounds awfully conditional, doesn't it? But then we get things like Judges 2, 1. I will never break my covenant with you. Never means never. I will never break my covenant with you. Jeremiah 31.3, earlier than the passage we have. I have loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I have continued my faithfulness to you. An everlasting love, forever and ever and ever. These all seem unconditional, don't they? So is the covenant that God makes with his people conditional or unconditional? Well, your response might be based on how you view God. Some people think that God is very conditional. Like the man in the opening story about marriage. All based on how she was going to act. If you do what you're supposed to, God will bless you. If you don't do what you're supposed to, he will punish you. Life with this kind of God is full of pressure and guilt. And so you become a guilt manager and you obey out, of, obey out of fear. Many of us are there. Living lives with guilt because we, we're not measuring up somehow and we need to measure up or God might punish us. And oh yeah, this punishment is because of that and that and the other. But I would say that most people in our culture, most secular people that actually believe in some kind of a God believe the opposite. They believe that God is love, that he doesn't punish sin. He's not a prude. He accepts people exactly as they are, except the bad people, of course, whatever they are. But we're not the bad people. We're the good people, so he accepts us. There's no hell. There's nothing bad after you die. When you die, you get to be with your loved ones, and you continue just as it were on earth, or at least some semblance of it. So the, the issue with this God is that this God looks a lot like the person that believes in him, right? He's a God that never challenges your beliefs, that always thinks like you do, which means that that particular God is actually you, right? But this is a, this is a major belief. See, we have the conditional God that people believe in, and we have the unconditional God that people believe in, both of these that I've just mentioned are caricatures of God. They're two-dimensional views of him that aren't true because the Bible is always way more nuanced than that. Christianity is way more nuanced than what we reduce it to. And we are good at reduction. 
So it's, it's much more complicated. Was the covenant between God and his people conditional or unconditional? And the answer is yes. Is that clearish? Shall we pray and be done? It doesn't it seem contradictory to you? So in both covenants, there's law, obey or else. This is the law, this is the standard, this is the rigid standard. And there's grace. I will love you and forgive you always. I will be with you. In old covenant language and in new covenant language, there are both. So why a new covenant? What makes it better than the old, and how does it solve the contradiction of both conditional and unconditional? Well, number two, the solution of the new covenant. So the problem with the old covenant is that it couldn't solve that problem. It really couldn't solve the problem. So the two covenants have the same meaning, but one was temporary and one was permanent. One was temporary and one was permanent. In the old covenant, God had given the law and the law was conditional, obey, be destroyed. And at the same time in the old covenant, God instituted a sacrificial system to take care of the sins of the people. That was the unconditional part. So there was the law, rigid. There was the sacrificial system, which was supposed to allow people to commune with God. In the new covenant, we also have the law. We have the rigid standard of the Ten Commandments, but we also have uh, grace. So what's the difference between the two? Some people would like to say, and, and, and this is actually prevalent, that the old covenant was a law-based covenant. People were saved. People came through the law. They obeyed the law, and that's how they got to God. And in the new covenant, it's grace, it's grace, and that's how you get to God. But it's not really true. There were both in both. At a study center in Pennsylvania, I think it was Ligonier, someone asked the great Bible scholar, scholar Alex Mateer, a question about what seemed like the disjointedness between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this was his response. He insisted that we were all one people of God. And then he asked us to imagine how the Israelites under Moses would have given their testimony to someone who asked for it. They would have said something like this. We were in a foreign land, in bondage, under the sentence of death, but our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with the promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God, took shelter under the blood of the lamb, and he led us out. Now we are on the way to the promised land. We are not there yet, of course, but we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have his presence in our midst. So he will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. And then Dr. Mateer concluded, now think about it. A Christian could say the same thing almost word for word. It's the same covenant with a new iteration. They sound identical, so why was there a need for a new covenant? 
Well, there's a need for a new covenant because the sacrificial system didn't take care of the problem. It didn't take care of the problem between conditionality and unconditionality. Why not? Well, it had a tremendous problem, and here was the problem. It had no real ability to forgive. See, the daily sacrifices of the temple, and especially the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy Holies once a year, and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. He'd have to sacrifice for himself, and then he'd sacrifice for everyone else. These sacrifices didn't really earn God's forgiveness. That's why they had to be offered over and over and over and over again. But not only that, the mediator of that covenant was a priest. He was fallible. He had to offer sacrifices for himself before he could offer sacrifices for the people. And the whole purpose of the sacrificial system was twofold. First, it satisfied God enough to overlook the sins of the people. He would pass over them. This wasn't, necess- this wasn't forgiveness. It was sanctuary. Allowing them to continue. But secondly, the whole point of the old covenant and the sacrificial system was to point to the new covenant. It was to point to the perfect sacrifice. We've got to see this. This is huge for the continuity of the scriptures. It pointed, um, it was the sacrifice that was done once and for all and the conditionality of the law and our disobedience of that law was punished in Jesus. See, this solves the problem. The Father sent him to hell in our place. He was rejected so that we might be accepted, both the unconditionality and the conditionality of the law are met in Jesus. Is the law conditional? Is God's covenant conditional or unconditional? Yes, it's conditional. But those who break it aren't the ones that pay for it. Jesus, God sends his son to come and pay for our disobedience of the law. That's why a new covenant needed to come. Verse 34, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Go on. To know Jesus is to know God the Father. His coming means that iniquity is completely forgiven. And look at that last phrase, I will remember their sin no more. Complete forgiveness. That couldn't happen in the old covenant. Not a once and for all. Past, present, and future sins. See, they were looking forward to a Messiah. That sacrificial system was pointing to something far greater, far bigger. You just have to read the book of Hebrews and you can see that that's actually true. So what are the benefits of the new covenant? giving you a lot of theology and doctrine. What are the benefits of the new covenant? When Jesus was on the cross, he cried, it's finished. The work was done. 
the fulfillment of all of that, of those sacrifices over years and years, starting way back with Abel, who sacrificed all the way through. And the final sacrifice once and for all was Jesus Christ. And he said, it is finished. Well, what was he talking about? The sins of all that call on him, past, present, and future, are forgiven. But then something astounding happened. And we need, to, we need to take note of it. In the temple, you remember there was a holy place and a holy of holies. And the holy of holies had this thick curtain on it. No one could go in except once a year. The high priest would go in and do that sacrifice for the sins of the people. And when Jesus died, that curtain was ripped from top to bottom. From top to bottom, it ripped all the way down. What was God saying by that? He was saying that the temple would no longer be the place where God's people would worship him. That would no, and no longer would the priests be mediators. There would be no other mediators except the one that gave his life on the cross. And see, after Jesus was raised from the dead and he was about to ascend to his father, he told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for what? That they would wait for the coming of the Spirit. And why would they be waiting for the Spirit? Because no longer would God's presence dwell in the temple, but now the temple of God would be his people. This is huge. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This is so much better than having to go to the temple to commune with God and to receive absolution from fallible priests where all the corruption was happening during Jesus' day. See, this is what our passage is talking about in verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How can he put his law on our hearts? Because he lives in us. And since the spirit of God lives in us, there's this whole new way to live. There's a whole new way to live. Now, this could be the subject of a gazillion sermons, and we're Presbyterians. We tend not to know that much about the Holy Spirit, but we're trying, okay? I'm trying. And I could preach many, many, many sermons, though there's far less about the Holy Spirit in Scripture than there is about Jesus, for instance. He is the center point. And really, the Holy Spirit, his job is to make Jesus real and to make Jesus loom large and for everyone to see Jesus. That's what the book of John verse six, uh, chapter 16 tells us. So it could be many sermons, but let's just look at one little passage about the Spirit. And if you want to learn about the Spirit, I would go to Romans 8 and just meditate on it for a while. But listen to what Romans 8 says, part of it, verse 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the Spirit, capital, Holy Spirit, of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit 
Holy Spirit, himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Let's just look at it briefly. The gospel of Jesus and the work of the spirit are intricately intertwined. So it's the spirit's work to make Jesus live in us. That Jesus becomes, he says, I will never leave you. Why? Because he lives in us. It's the spirit of Christ that lives in us. And I would ask you today, have you sensed the witness of the spirit in your soul that confirms that you are a child of God? See, we can have knowledge of the Bible which is really important. And we can have obedience to the commands of the Bible, which is really important. But there's this soul thing. And Romans 8 says, his spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. Have you sensed the spirit Confirm with you when you hear something, when you hear preaching, and you go, yes, that's it. Maybe when you're listening to a song or you're reading scripture and you go, yes, that's it. Yes, I know that. I know it because I know it because I know it. Doesn't mean you'll know it the next minute, but you've had that experience. Have you had that experience? If you haven't, you need to go back to Jesus, the one who fulfilled the covenant in our place. Is your view of God one where you feel like if you don't straighten up, he will punish you? So you live in fear and you follow him in fear. You obey because of fear. You obey because you don't want to get have that happen to you. See, that's not from God. That doesn't describe God. He's not given us a spirit of fear, but one of adoption where we cry out, Daddy, Father, Fear is not part of the Christian life. That comes from the other side. He's given us a spirit of his son and a spirit of adoption. Is your view of God one where it doesn't matter what you do? The other side? Well, the whole point of Christ's sufferings was that so that we might be forgiven and that we might follow him. And it says it in Romans here, the passage says that we will be glorified with him if we suffer with him. There's so much nuance to all of this. If we suffer with him, what does that mean? It means if we abandon ourselves, we become people of the spirit. We commune with him because he lives in us. We get our marching orders from him. We give up our own agendas and our own ways of doing things. We submit to him and we love him and we love others. This is called the way of the spirit or the way of the cross. And it involves death to ourselves. See, both the spirit of fear and the spirit of, of doing whatever you want are self-centered pursuits. But the way of the spirit is the way of Jesus. It's abandoning ourselves and pushing into him. There's suffering involved in that. I don't get to be all that. 
I'm not that important in the whole scheme of things. But he'll use me. It's the way down is the way up. And what a privilege it is because when we abandon ourselves, he gives us power to overcome sin and sadness, and he actually gives us joy. You want to know how to do joy? Forget about yourself for a while. Push into Jesus. That's the way of the Spirit. Live by the Spirit, Romans 8 tells us. I read this from Chuck Swindoll, the famous preacher that expresses what I want as well. He said this, by the time I graduated from seminary, I had many convictions and few questions. I would say that was the same with me too. Many, many convictions and I didn't need, I, I knew everything. <laughs> but during a lifetime of ministry that has taken me around the United States and to many countries abroad, I have found that the work of the Holy Spirit continually keeps me off balance. I'm not alone in that. Those in church leadership seem afraid the Spirit is going to do something we can't explain. I've found that disturbs many folks, but I'll admit it energizes me. I've come to realize there are dimensions of the Spirit's ministry I have never tapped and places in this study about which I know very little. I'm on a strong learning curve. I have witnessed a dynamic power in his presence that I long to know more of firsthand. I now have questions and a strong interest in many of the things of the spirit I once felt were settled. To say it plainly, I am hungry for more of him. I long to know God more deeply and more intimately. As we go forward as a church, I believe that this is the desire of your leaders. I've seen it in them. There's a hunger to know Jesus. There's a hunger to live the way of the Spirit. I see an interest in prayer. I see an interest in fasting. I see an interest in pursuing the work of the Spirit in our midst. And I pray that he would surprise us and that it would be so evident that it's his work. Brothers and sisters, this is the new covenant. Jesus has fulfilled the old covenant, and then he sent his spirit. If you, if you have called on the name of the Lord, you have been loved, forgiven, and he has sent his spirit into your heart so that you can be a force to be reckoned with for the kingdom. There's power in that. What are you going to do with that? That's the gospel. And it changes everything. Let's pray.